0: Hey, y'all. Welcome again to RUF. You walked in late. My name is Will Nettleton, and I am the RUF campus minister here. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's no big deal. we got it up on the screen. We'll have it uh, on your handout as well. While you're turning there, I just want to thank Valerie again for being here and encourage you to please connect with her. Uh, for all of the reasons that she listed, she has um, been an awesome addition to the spiritual life Group here at Trinity, so really thankful that she's here uh, and they have awesome opportunities for y'all to serve. So take advantage of that. Um, if you have been with us this semester, you may remember that we, during this time at large group, are studying the Ten Commandments together. And tonight, three weeks in, we actually come to the First Commandment, which is, if you've been to RF before, typical of us to take forever to get going. Uh, we spent our first week together looking at the prologue to the Ten Commandments, so we're actually going to reread that. Uh, again tonight to refresh our memory uh, as we go into the first commandment. The prologue that first week we talked about provides us with the context for these commandments. They're being given to Israel, God's people, by the God who has delivered them out of slavery in Egypt as a way to stay free and live in right relationship to him. Uh, The Ten Commandments are often thought of as these boxes that we need to check to stay on the right side of God or to earn his salvation or to get into heaven or whatever else you might want to throw in there. But we see from the context immediately for Israel, salvation preceded the commandments. They were to obey because they had already been saved. God had redeemed them first, and this was how they were to remain in right relationship with him and to express gratitude to him. Last week, we tried to answer the question, do these laws have abiding significance for us? What do these commandments have to do with us today? How do we connect these commands with the New Testament and with Jesus And we saw that because these commandments are connected to the character of God, they last as long as he does. Because these commandments tell us something about the God who gives them, they are as abiding as he is. We distinguish between the different kinds of law in the Bible and recognize that the Ten Commandments belong to that category of abiding significance, the moral law. Uh, These are the commands that God has given that have ongoing significance for everyone, everywhere. We also saw that Jesus fulfills the law for us. Before Jesus, these laws were a burden that stood between us and right relationship with God because Scripture tells us we can't keep them. Over and over and over again, we struggle to keep them. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God freely pardons all the times that we've broken His law. And He credits us with the righteousness of Jesus' perfect life uh, where He kept every single one of these laws perfectly. So whereas we couldn't keep any of them, Jesus kept every single one of them. And for those of us who have placed faith in Him, we get that righteous record And he takes our sin on the cross. Our sins are wiped clean and we get his perfect obedience credited to us. Mm -hmm. And so now these commandments as we go forward this uh, this semester are now given back to us just like they were given to Israel. Not as a burden, uh, not as a list of rules or boxes to check, uh, but as a compass, a guide in life. How are we now supposed to live? How do we live in right relationship with God? And how do we keep from going back into slavery? That's the question that we're going to keep asking over and over the rest of the semester. Uh, So tonight we finally come to that first commandment, and this one lays the foundation for all of the others. Uh, The breaking of every other commandment is actually initially a breaking of this one. Every other sin is a refusal to acknowledge uh, God as our God. We are always choosing to have other gods when we break the other commandments. Uh, So we're going to ask three questions tonight of this commandment. What does no other gods mean? What does before me mean, and how do we keep it? What does no other gods mean? What does before me mean, and how do we do this? How do we keep this commandment? So let me pray, and I'll ask God to join us uh, by his Spirit, and then we will read the text. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we now turn our attention uh, to your words. You told us that We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so I pray that you would feed us uh, tonight. You have promised uh, that your word does not return to you void, but it accomplishes every purpose you have for it. Whatever that purpose is, God, we ask that you would accomplish it tonight. Jesus, you claim to be our good shepherd, and you said that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray that you would help us to know it tonight. that We might hear you and follow you, uh, and that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. This is God's word to us tonight. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. the grass withers and the flowers thaw, but God's word endures forever and ever. I feel like I've done this every week this semester where I have like thrown out a movie of some sort that all of you have not seen. But at the risk of embarrassing myself again, how many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan? Tell me more of you. Okay, yes. Thank you. Okay, great. So in Saving Private Ryan, if you remember, there's this great scene between Tom Hanks and Matt Damon who's playing Private Ryan. Context of the movie, Private Ryan, Matt Damon is one of four brothers who's fighting in World War II and his three other brothers are killed in action. They all die, and the government finds out about the story, and they realize, we've got to get the last one home. We've got to get him home to his family. That's too much sacrifice for one family. And so Tom Hanks and seven men from his company are commissioned to bring Private Ryan back home. And so the movie's about Tom Hanks and his men fighting to get to Matt Damon, and then fighting to get him out uh, safely. After, this is all after the Normandy invasion, when everything's kind of going crazy. And so at one point, in a break between the fighting, he, they've secured Private Ryan, they're getting him back, and he and Tom Hanks are having a conversation about home. They're talking about what do you think about when you think about home? And Tom Hanks kind of gets this faraway look in his eyes and he says, when, when I think of home, I think of something specific. I think of my hammock in the backyard or my wife pruning the rose bushes and a pair of my old work gloves. And as he says that, you can kind of tell he's thinking about it and he kind of drifts off for a second. And so Matt Damon picks up the conversation, and he goes into this long story about his brothers, this really funny story about catching one of them in the barn with a girl and embarrassing him, and he finishes the story, and he's kind of laughing and crying, and he comes back to Tom Hanks, and he asks him to tell him about his wife and the rose bushes. He wants him, he clearly, that story meant something to Tom Hanks, and so he kind of tosses the ball back to him, do you want to share about that story? And Tom Hanks has this faraway look in his eyes, and he tells Matt Damon, no, 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 that one I saved just for me. That one I saved just for me. And I love that scene because it so perfectly captures the reality that some things are not meant to be shared. That there are some things that are so sacred, so beautiful, that they should not be given away. That it's actually the exclusivity of of keeping it and not sharing it that makes it powerful. And in the first commandment tonight, we find that there is something that God actually refuses to share. And not something is you. God refuses to share you. He'll not share you with anyone or anything else that you might want to worship. He says, no, no. This one I save just for me. He wants you to worship him alone. That's the response, because he's saving you for himself. He's wholeheartedly committed to his people, and he asks the same in return. He says, You'll have, you should have no other gods before me. Which raises an interesting question, right? I I thought I knew something about Christianity. Aren't they monotheists? Who are these other gods anyway? What other gods is he talking about? So we'll look it out. No other gods. What does he mean by that? Kind of have to remember the context here in which the commandments are delivered. Right? Israel's just left Egypt. Egypt is an insanely polytheistic culture without rival. They worshiped gods of fields and rivers, light and darkness, sun and storm. And over the 400 years of their enslavement, Israel began to worship these gods as well. That had trickled in, and they had begun to worship these gods in addition to Yahweh. And so when God delivers them, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so we talked about this two weeks ago, but in using that name Lord or Yahweh, God is reminding them that he is the real true God, the one living and true God who actually exists, unlike all of the gods that they worship in Egypt. He says something similar in Isaiah 45, 21, and I've put a lot of extra passages on your handout tonight because we're going to reference a few other ones. This one's on there. He says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. the New Testament, Paul's going to pick up something similar in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. He says that an idol has no real existence. There's no no God but one. So the Bible calls all of these other so-called gods imposters and idols. Which raises an interesting question. If that's true, if they're not real, then what is even the point in telling us not to have other gods? If there aren't really any other gods to begin with, then how do you have one? How do you have another one? And the Bible actually tells us the answer to that is relatively uh, simple, that we are actually able to worship powerful realities in creation as if they were real gods. We're actually kind of able to make our own gods, and the Bible calls these things idols these things are creational realities that god put into the world uh, as good in their proper place in in many cases things like sex money power uh, things that in their proper place can serve for god's glory and are good but then when they are made into ultimate things can immediately become corrupted anytime we begin to look to those things for something that only god can give us they become something different they become an idol Uh, Tim Keller phrases it this way. He says, Idolatry is when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. I love that language. We take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing in our life. Listen to what else he writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, Something must capture our imaginations, our heart's most fundamental allegiance and hope. Under the influence of sin, every person believes that freedom will be found if we give ourselves to something, whether it's love for another person, money, success power pleasure sex or even our own morality or a favorite christian leader whatever it is when we pursue such things as having ultimate significance in the hopes that they will give us safety significance and hope for the future we have made that thing an idol and this is what the first commandment forbids okay so when god says no other gods it's not because he's afraid of the competition. Right? It's not like he's scared of you having other girlfriends. That's not what he's worried about. He's saying stop worshiping those things like they are gods. They are not. They cannot deliver ultimate meaning and significance. They can't deliver what you're looking for. So how do you know what your idols are? How do you know what your idols are? Two tests for you here. Uh, the first is a love test. I mentioned last week that Jesus summed up the Ten Commandments with love for God and love for neighbor. We're called to love God with all our hearts and with all our minds. And the implication is because you're going to love something. You're going to love something. It will either be God or it will be something else. How do you know what you love? Uh, Maybe it's easier to rephrase the question this way. What do you want in life? What do you desire more than anything else? What can you not live without? When your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? What do you talk about even when no one is asking you about it? Right? That Twitter meme right now, no one, literally no one, and then you. What do you fill in the blank with right there? What is that thing for you? Could be a sport, could be a hobby, could be your career ambitions, could be personal health and fitness. Again, nothing wrong with these things in their proper place, right? Those are all good things in and of themselves. They're good things, but when we make them ultimate things, they can't, bury the weight. they can't carry the weight. It will crush us underneath our expectations. So that's the love test. What do you love? What do you love in this world? The second test for knowing what your idols are is the trust test. What do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? Where do you go when you're lonely or discouraged? For some of you, that can be substances or sex or shopping or some distraction on the internet to get you through, right? Others of you will lean into your work ethic. You're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder, be better. Trust yourself. Others of you will look for another person or significant other to get you through. The truth is that we will be tempted to love and trust many things other than God. The world is full of God substitutes or God add-ons. It's kind of easy to look at the ancient Near Eastern cultures that worshipped all of these idols or other cultures that do this and think, That is so silly, those people just bowing down to these wooden idols or doing whatever it is they were doing. But you see, as we talk about it, we are worshiping the same powers, the same things, right? When they would go to worship a fertility god or goddess, what were they after? Same thing we are after when we worship at the altar of sex. And you can fill in the blank for all these other ones as well. The world is full of God substitutes or God add-ons. Philip Ryken phrases it this way. He said, The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have false gods anymore, but because we have so many. It's just hard to pin them down. If you're anything like me, behind all of these lesser idols is the God of self. The God of self. The thing that I worship more than anything else is me. That's what I want in this life. To be comfortable, to be happy. Those are my ultimate aims. Those are the things I spend all my time thinking about. Those are the things I spend my money on. We love and trust ourselves. We spend most of our time thinking about our own needs, our own plans, our own problems, our own desires. In fact, for many of us, even our spiritual lives are mostly about this. All of our prayers are mostly about us. God becomes this magic vending machine in the sky, for getting everything I want in my life. That's where I always start with prayer. Here's my list of things. The first commandment tells us that we were not designed to live with ourselves on the throne of the universe. We are not the main characters in the whole thing. God is. And he is inviting us to live into that reality. So that's no other gods. No other gods before me. What does that mean? God finishes the first commandment with a funny phrase, before me. Sounds almost like God is okay with idol worship as long as he's number one, right? I don't care what you do in your own time as long as I'm the main God. If you know anything about we talk about these things you know that's not it Um, literally the original reads you shall have no other gods before my face or in my presence and we're talking about an omnipresent god so that's everywhere right he's saying you 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 shall have no other gods before me and the point god is making here is that he's saying worship of him is all or nothing worship of him is all or nothing Um, this is going to come up again and again throughout the rest of the scriptures Worshiping God is an all-or-nothing affair. In Joshua, when he renews the covenant with Israel in Joshua 24, he says, Put away the gods that your fathers served in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Then in 1 Kings 18.21 on Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah is having this great battle uh, with the prophets of Baal, and he liberates the Israelites from their bondage to that false god Baal, and he says, If the Lord is God, follow him but if Baal is God, then follow him. He's saying, choose. Choose who you're going to follow. And of course, Jesus himself said similar things. He said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says you have to choose when it comes to money or him. Or John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Um, We live in a a culture in a moment where it's very popular for us to say things like, I'll worship my God my way, and you worship your God your way. And that sounds really good and really respectful. Um, Unless what we've been saying this semester is true. Unless this really is the way that God has designed us to live. That he's designed us to live in worship of him alone. If we've been made to worship him, to say you worship your God your way, is to send people off living against the way they've been designed to live. But they have been designed to live in relationship with this God. The call of Christianity is not, I'll worship my God my way, you worship your God your way. It's let us both worship God his way. Let us both worship the God his way. But we can't ever forget what we've already talked about. Because that can begin to sound so aggressive to our ears. This God who needs so much worship from us. Who will brook no rivals, as it were. We can't never forget what we've already talked about. Who is this God who calls him to love us exclusively like this? Calls us to love him exclusively. It's the God who saved us. Who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. And the God who through Jesus has brought us out of our slavery to sin. The God who's inviting you to give everything and everyone else up to follow him. Is the one who has already given everything up to win you back. What God is inviting us to do in this commandment is to say, I love you too. He has expressed his love for us in Jesus, in his sacrifice, his life perfectly lived, his resurrection, his ascension up into heaven. And he is inviting us now to turn and worship him as the one true and living God. Jesus is the one who perfectly kept the law we can't keep, who offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins and was raised from the dead to open the way to eternal life. He's asking us to love him because he has loved us first. So how do we do that? How do we actually keep this commandment? Um, I think remembering what we just talked about and believing that is how we go about starting to keep this commandment. That Jesus, that God in Jesus has loved us first. Thomas Chalmers was a 19th century uh, Scottish minister, uh, which is how you always start the funnest sentences you're about to say, uh, at (laughs) large And he wrote this little essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And the gist of his argument was this the only way to move on from an old love is to have a new one powerful enough to take its place. The only way to move on from an old love is to have a new one powerful enough to take its place. Some of you actually experience this, right? When do you when do you get over a breakup? Right? Usually about the time a new person comes along, however long that is right? Days, weeks, months, years. Um, It takes something new and better to expel the old. Uh, Chalmers says this is also at work in our idolatry, that we will not be able to walk away from our idolatry, from the false gods, the other gods that we worship in this life, until we find God more beautiful and more loving and more trustworthy than them. To stop loving and trusting in these other things, we have to find God more beautiful, more trustworthy than they are. And how do we do that? I think we look again to the cross. Nowhere do we find God more lovely, more loving, and more trustworthy than when he goes to the cross on our behalf. As we consider our sin that made the cross necessary, and remember that it was for the joy of being united with us that Jesus endured it, all those hymns that we sing here and in other places start to make more sense. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Those are the questions we begin to reflect on as we think about how we might keep the commandments. Who is this God that would love us like this? And might he be worth following? I know many of you, I don't know how many of you, but I know many of you come because you're still kind of wrestling with what you think about Christianity. Some of you are considering this for the first time. Some of you are considering this for the first time in a long time. Uh, my invitation to you tonight, as it is most weeks, is what if this is true? What if there's a God who loves you really that deeply, who loves you like that? Would he be worth loving back? For those of you who are Christians, who are considering uh, how how do we walk in this life, this is true for you. This is: We never get past the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. We are constantly going back to this truth that God loved us enough to die for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Because, in fact, we had done everything but that. But because he loves us and he wants us for himself. Consider it as I pray for us and we get ready to sing. God in heaven, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for these friends. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to worship you, I pray. God, if what we've considered here is true, that you would help it uh, to sink down deep into our hearts. And if it's not, that it would fade away. And I pray, God, that you um, would draw us to yourself, make us more into the image of your Son. Uh, And I pray, especially for my friends here who are still considering, God, would you um, open up their eyes to see you? Would they have confidence uh, that you are there, that you have spoken, uh, and that you long to be in relationship with them? And for my friends who are struggling uh, along with me to follow you, I pray that you would give us uh, fresh encouragement this week as we seek to have no other gods before you, as we seek to worship you. Thank you that you are not a God who will share us with any others, uh, that you long to have us for yourself. I pray that you would help us to love you back. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.